I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Came a long way for a kiss goodnight. Should enchantment fall out of every door? Will not on my streets anymore? California. Can You Wait by Matthew Edwards and the Unfortunates. Matthew Edwards is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Matthew Edwards. And by the way, no one has said his name more in a five-second span than I just did, which means I've just unintentionally set some kind of record. All right, let me tell you a little bit about Matthew Edwards and the Unfortunates. Okay, before we begin today's show, I want to say something, and I don't I don't think this is going to come as much of a surprise to you, um, but I want to say it anyway. When I do these interviews for the podcast, the people I interview, whether they're politicians, musicians, authors, whatever, typically they're not usually my friends before I talk to them. In other words, I don't know them, right? In fact, when I talk to them, it's the first time I've ever talked to them. Now, there are times where we hit it off and we become friends. That has happened uh, with several people. I don't want to drop any names, but let's just say I'm in a very competitive shuffleboard league with Drake. Uh, But the point is, I don't know these people. And it's fun to talk to them for the first time because there's an excitement in not knowing them and then getting to know them while we chat. It's a very slow, organic thaw, and I love it. It's one of my favorite things about doing this show. And like I said, oftentimes... I don't want to say oftentimes, but many times when the interviews are over, um, I become friends with the people I talk to. We exchange numbers. We stay in touch. It's very cool. And it's one of the most gratifying things uh, about doing this. But this episode is a unique episode because my guest today is my friend. And so 
The challenge was uh, for him not to hate me at the end of it. No, the challenge of it was to present him not as my friend but as an artist because sometimes, you know, when you're friends with somebody, it gets a little too uh, casual and uh, you tend to zip over things that you think everyone else knows but they may not. So I was worried that Matthew and I would talk and we would fall into that trap and it would seem too insular and the audience would feel, I don't know, a bit excluded. I I didn't want you guys to feel that way. Well, I'm happy to say that didn't happen. Why? Well, because Matthew Edwards is a pro. We met when his band The Music Lovers played at the makeout room in San Francisco. We talked after his set and we became fast friends. He helped me a lot when I was writing my book on the Stone Roses, and I returned the favor by writing the liner notes for the Music Lover's second album, The Music Lover's Guide for Young People. And then he returned that favor by coming to the university where I teach to play an acoustic set for my students. He did that twice. Look, the fact is, Matthew Edwards is one of the greatest songwriters around. His compositions are elegant, melodic, and literate and they glide with harmonic precision and ease. He writes about the nostalgia of late nights, the sadness of former beauty queens, and the beauty that rises from the wreckage of romantic ruin. Oh, and one more thing. He's a consummate professional who cares. He cares about the music, and he cares about you. Yes, you. Out there in the audience. You in the front row. You in the middle. And you in the back And even you out there in the lobby, on your phone, get off that thing. He cares about you, too. The evidence of this can all be found in the craftsmanship of the music, the visual presentation of his albums, and the generosity of his live shows. All right, let me tell you a story. When Matthew Edwards first came to campus to play for my students, he asked me, we had about 20 minutes before he had to play, he asked me if I had an office that he could use. I said, sure. I gave him the key to my office. I said, it's around the corner. Go for it. I'll come get you in 20 minutes. My friend and uh, Stereo Ember's editor-at-large, David Porter, was with me that night. He helped me set the room up, and then it was time for Matthew to play. I walked around the corner to my office to get him, and when I walked in, he was doing vocal exercises. Now, that may not seem like a very big deal, but listen. Matthew was going to play for a room full of students. It wasn't being recorded. It would just be one of those performances that would exist inside of a room that people would remember but never be able to reference through tape. In other words, he could have been sloppy, but he ran through his scales and I stood there listening and I remember thinking to myself, this guy doesn't care how big or small the room is. Every performance to Matthew Edwards is just that, a performance. And it doesn't matter if the room has 25 people or 25,000. If you're there, you deserve a show. And as a matter of fact, You're going to get one right now. This is my conversation with Matthew Edwards. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Yeah, we didn't find the last four years I've had both my parents die and I'm obviously I made a record as well in the middle of that uh, yeah it, it wasn't good my mum's death was, was uh, just really not nothing for six kind of months you know 
um, it was completely expected, but it still obviously was, I was so close to her. You know, it was it was pretty you know, pretty intense for a while. I'm just gradually coming out the other end of it, but I had, I had a lot to, to sort out here. So it's one of those things, you know. <sighs> well, do you do you think that the can you hear all that in the album? Like when you listen to the Birmingham Poets, do you do you hear the heaviness of what was going on? Uh, I don't know. I mean, other people could probably tell me better than I can say myself, and that's not a cop out. But um, I, I mean, it's it's the most autobiographical record that I've made. It's a lot of it. It's about Birmingham. A lot of it's about my past and my present. It's definitely very, very. It's a very candid record, and it wasn't just me. You know, with making of the record, and we all went through some pretty tough times. Nobody came to, out of the last two years unscathed. I mean, we had to um, postpone even recording the album and for quite a while because one of us got quite seriously ill. Um, two of us lost parents. One of us had a partner, had a breakdown, a very bad one. And so it, it been, was really fraught. But then I started rehearsing these songs with, with Craig as the guitar player. And then gradually when people started coming back to life, so to speak, and regenerated, um, we we recorded it in a really short space of time because we we practiced it so intently, you know. Once everybody was fit again and feeling relatively together, <laughs> I finished the record and then, like, literally a week later, my mom died. So that was that was sort of a cap on that. When all this stuff was going on, did you did you feel like at least the music was a kind of stabilizing element, or did that help? Yeah. Absolutely, it was a, yeah. For you know, it's an overused word, but it was incredibly cathartic for me. It was the only thing that well, one of the only things. Well, obviously, my daughter as well, and wife. But um, one of the only things that was really keeping together, I, I, me together at the time, watching somebody decline and and, and disappear. But um, I could get rid of everything with with the music that I was writing, and then subsequently recording. And I think it was the same for a lot of for the other guys in the band as well, even people on the peripheries of of the unfortunate people who played on the record. Um, uh, you know, the extra folks that all, were all going through a kind of a hard time. Everybody, thankfully, everybody's in a better place now. But uh, my God, it was it was some pretty tough times. Did what was happening ever change what you were doing in the studio or with in terms of the songs? Did anything actually transform based on what was happening outside in the real world? Anything, well, the necessity was that um, I, I had a long time without having an active band. So I had a long time of gestation of the songs and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, which I always do anyway, lyrically. And then I had a period of time. So it was different in that regard. But the recording, it was very fast. We recorded the whole thing. Um, pretty much all of it was done in three weekends, three long weekends, you know, the whole rest. Then I went back and did some bits and bobs and then I'm... Mixed it with Johnny Rivers in, in Leamington Spa, um, and then literally, you know, put a cap on that, and everything was ah, oh, you know, energy one, and then of course my mum um, went and died, so everything all together. But yes, yeah, so it was different from previous records. It, it was um, there was an intensity about the whole thing. It was like it was build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, do it. You know, I feel like it, it, it's such a heavy. Thing that you went through that all that everybody went through i feel like the next album yeah. should just be a monkeys album uh i'm not sure there will be a next album is that i mean i, I was joking because I, I was thinking like you should do something really fun and buoyant but like do you really feel that that that's something that you like you don't have it in you uh, anymore to do it 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure I've ever done anything that was really fun and boring. Although I am quite, can be quite, quite a fun person. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sort of some downcast, you know, garret dweller. But in real life, in, you know, but I just don't write those sort of songs. You know, I, I, I've, over the three albums with, I did with the, the Music Lovers years ago, and then the three albums I've now done with The Unfortunates, um, none of them can exactly be called uh, cheery, you no. know, for want of a better word. But um, having said that, this is, I mean, the Birmingham Poets, um, I've lived with it. It's been finished for six months, and it's been out for a month and a bit, and it's the best record I've made. It's It's... If, if this is if this is the last one I do, if it is, I'm incredibly happy with it. It's it's I I I, I it's it's yeah, it's the best one I've done. Why do you feel that it, that it could be the last? Um, usually, when I finish an album, I go oh, and I've got some ideas for something else. Um, and I don't want to sully the 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 legacy, which is which is what legacy you know I, I sell a thousand records, blah blah. But um, I don't want to sully the legacy by doing anything that's less than than that's not as good as, as the Birmingham Poets. I don't want to do anything if it's not as good. If something crops up and comes along, and I, you know, I'm writing something and I go, oh yeah, this is this is as good. This is as good as something I could do. Then I'll think of it. But I don't. I have the desire to play live. I don't have the desire to write at the moment. I have a lot of desire to go out and play shows, but I don't have a desire to write. I, I, I feel like such, I, I sponged such a lot on those 10 songs and such a lot came out. And it was so fraught that it just, I, my nerve endings were whittled down to the, you know, the, the very basis point. I was talking to Robert Forrester of the Go-Betweens a couple of weeks ago, and he, his yeah. new album has nine songs. And yeah. I said to him, I said, what did you leave on the on the cutting room floor? And he was like, nothing, that this was it. I, I only had nine songs. Did you only have yeah. 10 songs for this record or did, was there stuff you left behind? Uh, well, I'm always j- juggling little bits and pieces, but now I, I had 10 finished songs, 10 finished songs. I mean, um, a couple of them were written, say, a couple of years ago, but they were all written really in the course of yeah the last two years. Um, no, I didn't really, this album, I really didn't have anything that was left off previously. I was always like, right, 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 right. And then, and then discard this time. I, everything that came, everything that actually came and came naturally, I was very happy with. So nothing was forced. Everything just came very, um, yeah, very naturally. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like, like the, all the pieces were in place. So you didn't have to even worry about any kind of excess and making any decisions about what to, you know, what to include and what to discard you know well i I'd, you know i i knew the guys in the band we, we did the last album you know we we made folklore uh which which i'm very which i'm very happy with this one i'm happy with all of the records i've been fortunate you know but having said that um we reached our, our pinnacle with this particular record i mean i have a, a great drummer Derek, who i've known since i was a teenager bobby on bass and obviously craigus was the new boy which brought a much more of an electric guitar feel into it which is kind of wanted to, I wanted to do you know I wanted a a Tom Verlaine a, a Richard Thompson kind of thing in there and and he did that and then sort of doing a bit of Phil Manzanera as well I like you, that I like that Robert Forster album by the way I think it's a really good record oh Inferno is great isn't it yeah it's, yeah it's really good the single's great talk about light-hearted that's that's well relatively isn't it yeah he's he's exceptional and I, I was asking him too about the idea that like you're, you know, he was saying I'm a really slow songwriter, but Grant McLennan was not, and I was kind of wondering what it was like to be around somebody who was sort of like, you know, so prolific. 
Yeah, well, I've never co-written with anybody. I've never had anybody in a band with me who writes songs. So I've nothing to, you know, I'm really insular. I don't really, I collaborate with arrangements and they give people, the people that I trust, and they are only the people I trust free reign to do what they want. But I, I'm the songwriter in, in the uh, in the unfortunates. And as the same as I was in the music lovers, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not very good at um, sharing the responsibility for music or words. I wonder what it would be like if you had another songwriter in the band who brought their own songs. I wonder if that would make you, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're a competitive guy or if you just don't, you don't want to share that, that role. I'm competitive with the whole, uh, the whole world, <laughs> but uh, sorry, but I'm not competitive with other, other songwriters. I, I want to be, I want to be the best songwriter I can be, but I, I, I can't, I can't share, I can't share the unfortunates or whatever approach. I just can't do it with anybody else. There is an exception to that. There is an exception to that. There is one person that I work with who I can't mention, who people will probably be very familiar with if they know me and what I've done. Uh, there's a woman I want to work with. She wants to work with me. We want to make a record together um, with her, her words and my me writing the song, the the music for her. And she's the only person on earth that I would collaborate with in that in that because she's um, a genius. She's one of the best things in in the world. And thank God. I, She's blessed me with playing with me before, but unfortunately, she has to overcome some little health issues so that we can enable us to do that. So hopefully, if that comes to fruition, that will be something I would definitely do. Even if there's not another unfortunate album, the Matthew Edwards album, I'd do that in, in a heartbeat. So the unnamed person, that thing could happen? Yeah, yeah. Providing providing she um, her health improves and... Um, you know, we've, we've entrusted each other with the idea of working together where we wouldn't do with anybody else. Both she's been approached by other people to work on things and I've said no. So we're, we're, it's just a matter of waiting and biding time. She'll do better and, and then we'll do it. All right. I, I'm intrigued. It's not that intriguing. I just don't want to say her name. People who know the records that will know who she is, but I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, it's, give, give her some. Uh, a little bit of a distance from this, you know. Fair enough. Um, now, I met you in San Francisco. You were here for a long time. Then you were back uh, at home in Birmingham. Do you feel your identity, you know, in terms of how you self-identify geographically, um, did the California-Birmingham uh, sort of, uh, you know, the bridge between the two, uh, was that confusing for you in terms of identity? Or did, do you always identify as being a Birmingham boy? Well, I've always identified as being a Birmingham boy because I was born and brought up in the city, very much in the city. I'm a very much a city kid, you know. And I came from a pretty inner city area of Birmingham, so that's always. But Birmingham is in my heart, you know. It's, it's where my my parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody lived in the same neighbourhood when I was growing up. So yes, I do essentially. But then, in myself, from a very early age. I've always felt, I mean, since, since in my teens, I've always felt very European. And the reason I went to, well, that's very European. I was a big Francophile when I was young, you know, and I've I traveled around Europe very young ages and, and loved it. But when I came to America, when I first came to America, when I was pretty young, I fell in love with America, but I'd always been in love with the idea of America. And then when I came here, I discovered that the idea they put it into action pretty well, <laughs> not not at the moment, but previously they have. And um, and of course, you know, I love America. I don't like what's going on there, but I've I've loved America since I first went there. I love the people. It's just it's mind blowing country. Hence me spending twenty years there. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> what what didn't match up? 
But what what didn't match up in what in what regard, Alex? In terms of what the, what the idea with the reality. Ah, what didn't match up to me? Um, uh, I can't really say. I can't say. I don't. I don't. I don't want to irritate or upset anybody on, on either side. You know, in England or, or or the US, because what didn't match up? No, I mean exceeded in many regards. America exceeded what my, you know, my my fourteen year old star skin hutch brain was going on about at the time. Um, so yeah, um, what, nothing really let me down. It, America lets me down now, you know, I'm an American citizen and I see things happening there that I find sort of abhorrent, but um, it doesn't stop me loving the country as a whole. It just, it just brings me down. Well, let's get even more granular. How about the idea of like the West Coast romance? Like when you thought about California and then you ended up in California, you know, even San Francisco more specifically. Did the did the California I, uh, idea? How about that? Did that did that match up to the no I, no? I I didn't have any romance about California at all. I I didn't I didn't idolize any of the right California writers or uh, musicians particularly, with obvious exceptions. Um, I was never a California. Everything that I loved when I was young was from New York. Everything in New York was was the you know was I had to go there when I was young. I mean I was obsessed with. Laura Nero and Patty Smith and the New York Dolls and Richard Hell and you know a lot of many of the writers from New York. I never had any time and still don't have a lot of time for a lot. Unfortunately, West Coast music with um, uh, San Francisco bands. I'm not particularly or the old school sort of psychedelic scene and the beats. They it does very little for me to be honest. But of course, people love that stuff and that's their their right, obviously. But I was never. Much of a lover of like, I always thought the Blue Cheer were a much better band than, say, the Grateful Dead, or and and, and the and Love, the great LA band, you know, and Sparks are the great LA band, you know, those are the two great Los Angeles bands. There are a lot of other bands that get a lot more kudos, perhaps, but those are on San Francisco, I mean, Bay Area, you know, Sly Stone, that's it. Yeah, you you never struck me as a Country Joe and the Fish fan. No, that's, I just should say that. No, I'm, I mean, I don't dislike Country Joe and the Fish, but I've probably only ever heard them in passing, so I couldn't really decide. It's just not my bag. I find it too limp. Why did you end up in California and not New York? Well, I was in New York for a bit. I, I was going backwards and forwards in the, uh, when I was a bit younger, uh, and I got out of university. <clears throat> uh, and then I had friends in New York, and friends from New York moved to San Francisco, and they were, we, we, they were getting into suborn more sort of bucolic existence and you know hanging out over here and they were doing pretty well and like they were all the guys i'd, I'd been hanging out having wild times with in new york and come to san francisco and say mellowed a little bit well on the outside mellowed a little bit but i soon found out that wasn't the case so it was just crazy as ever when i came in the early 90s to san francisco and i just fell into a situation there where i was making a bit of money and san francisco was very affordable and I, look, I was able to get to the desert very easily. You know, I could fly the park, get out and go into the wilds, which I really enjoyed, which for a kid from inner city Birmingham, going out to sort of Joshua Trees, pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> well, yeah. So that, that, that was it. Yeah, I, I, I loved it. You know, I, mean, I, I, I and San Francisco was, a, was, was a, in the early 90s, was a fantastic place. It was just really rough and ready and cheap. Yeah, well, that's changed. No, yeah, really. No, no, it's just terrible, isn't it? <laughs> but everything changes, mate. I know, I know. And and the the problem now is that, you know, whatever scene that there was when you were here, and I know you know this, but there is no music scene anymore in San Francisco. Yeah, I was never particularly I never I mean when I was playing in San Francisco, there were people that I really liked here. 
but um, there were people I loved rather in San Francisco for missions, but I was never much of a scene person anyway. I mean, it just so happened that I was here. I was in San Francisco, I was playing music, but I was never really taken to heart, say, by the local scene or scene stirs particularly through the whole time I was there. But of course, I, I saw over the years, I saw brilliant people, people who opened for us, you know, people I played with, like people like, you know, Joanna Newsom, who, who couldn't get a gig in San Francisco, who was derided as a, as a kind of a comedy act by people around here. I absolutely adored. She played two of her first shows opening for, for us and people like Richard Buckner and, and of course, Tom Heyman, who's a fantastic songwriter in the city. So there's really good stuff. It's just, it has never coalesced into one big, lovely scene for me. I've always been a bit of an outsider. And I quite like having that outsider status. I don't like getting too close into niches. In terms of the actual Birmingham poets, were were there people growing up, were there singer-songwriters from Birmingham that you admired? There were punk rock bands from Birmingham that I admired. Um, you could call them poets if you wanted. I mean, there was a band called The Prefects, which morphed into a band called The Nightingales, a guy called Rob Lloyd that I thought was really good. Uh, there was a guy called Stephen Duffy who had a band called the Subterranean Hawks, um, and later on he had a band called the Lilac Time. Right. And I thought he, I thought he was really good. And then there, was, there were other bands around. I mean, I, I was never, yeah. And I was playing music from a really early age in the city. I was playing in bands when I was fifteen. You know, going out and doing shows and touring and, and what, what have you. But scene wise, yeah, I mean, people like my, I don't know. Robin Hitchcock, I really liked Robin Hitchcock back in back in the day, but he wasn't from around there. Well, when you saw bands like Duran Duran go so big in like 80, 82, yeah. 83, did that make you think, well, yeah. people from Birmingham can get super famous? I didn't think twice of it. I thought it was just incidental that they were from Birmingham. I think what what one thing about them that wasn't incidental from about them being from Birmingham was they had an incredible work ethic, which I always admired, especially John, who I knew a bit. Just he was just he was just a worker, man. They put so many hours into making Duran Duran a success. I like fair play, you know. Guys, do it, you know. However contrived to an extent it was, it was they contrived it themselves. You know, I fair good luck to them. I mean, I, they're they're generally nice blokes. Or the ones I know are, or they were back then anyway. I mean. But I never felt like in competition. I never wanted to be in like a new romantic band. I never felt like I wanted to do, go that way. That was that wasn't my my thing. I wasn't I wasn't into this to be to be really famous, you know. And I think John and those guys they were and they succeeded. So it's great. Well, I mean, I, I saw them live a couple of years ago, and I realized that they are just one of the best funk bands uh, around, which I never really realized. But was Roger playing with them? Was Roger the, the original drummer playing with them? Yeah, he was. Because he he's great. He's a great drummer. He's a great drummer, and um, he's a great drummer, and a really, really lovely guy as well. Oh, is he? Yeah, he. I mean, he was. If he wasn't playing with them, I might not have gone because I wanted to see him and I wanted to see John Taylor. I wanted to hear those guys lock in together. Yeah, yeah. Now there were a lot of different kinds of music, kind of you know, around Birmingham: reggae, ska, punk. Uh, you know, what were the sounds that you were hearing growing up? Where, where I grew up, which was an area called Small Heath, Small Heath, Borsal Heath, and then the other side of the city at Hansworth. So when, when I was growing up, um, my neighborhood was probably about 50% then, 45-50% Jamaican, Barbadians, West Indians. And um, so it permeates the culture quite a lot if you're from, if you're from those areas. I mean, I, there were sound systems down my street, there was blues parties. And then you get a lot of younger lads were getting into being in, in reggae bands, you know, and growing their locks out and doing stuff. 
from from the party scene. So I played. I mean, I used to go and see. There was a lot of really, really good reggae in Birmingham in back in you know before I came to the states. So many great great bands and good sound systems. It was a really vibrant scene. Very multicultural. Generally, very multicultural city. And yeah, I can't with the funk thing. Yeah, I mean, Derek who plays with me comes from very much a, a, a funk background. You know, he's he, he's played in some really big bands over he and he's just a brummy guy, you know, but he's, he's like a metronome. So, yeah, there's a lot, been a lot of crossover. There's a lot of crossover between, especially reggae in Birmingham. I mean, it's reggae and metal here, and I, and I have a penchant for both. Well, what was the, who were the metal bands that were at the time? Oh, well, a little bit like for me, there was like Napalm Death, Bolt Thrower, uh. Um, who I used to go and see. And then that was like, you know, that I, was re- I, I, liked, I liked the fact that they would just like, took a, a lot, lot from punk rock and made it, incredibly furious so I go and see, yeah I mean I, I like to, I still like to go and see metal stuff now I, I still have fun and of course you know back in the day we had half a Led Zeppelin and you know Black Sabbath of course Judas Priest and Magnum and all those lots and lots of bands I always think of like a, you know a city's identity and I think about um, Manchester is obviously the obvious one for me in terms of like you know late 70s early 80s you could hear the sort of industrial element of manchester in the music um yeah but very where, much so. where do you hear birmingham best like what how is birmingham best represented sonically how, uh, what what band best represents birmingham sonically yeah the sound of the actual city yeah that's an interesting question because to an extent black sabbath do to an extent the first steel pulse album hansworth revolution reflects the city really well so that you've got to this too and a, a band that i think really reflects that, that suits the city well. A broadcast, broadcast are a quintessential Birmingham band. They're odd. They came out of sort of nowhere as much as sort of Black Sabbath did as well. But they're in, very intrinsic to the city, to the fibre of this place. I, I thought broadcast were a fantastic group. The most Birmingham group of all. <laughs> they were signed to Wharf. They put a number of records out. So, uh, really, very, very sadly, uh, Tish Keenan, who was the singer, died. Um, about six or seven years ago, um, which was a terrible show. She was a brilliant singer, and they were a great band, and I, I recommend them highly. I saw them actually in San Francisco twice, uh, Great American Music Hall once, and I think at Cafe de Nord once, and they were just mind-bendingly good, live and in every way. Just a, a brilliant British band, and much, much appreciated as well. Another band who were from Birmingham that I like, I think have done really creative, interesting stuff, and once again, they're left field. They're not part of a scene, per se. It's Pram. I think Pram are good, and then also the Lilac Time, the early Lilac Time stuff is very good. Uh, yeah, the first couple of records are excellent. I think Paradise Circus, uh, I don't think I took it off my turntable back in 90. I don't think I removed it for like three months. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I, the first album especially I really like. Um, Paradise Circus is a good record. Um the recent ones I've been quite, you know, yeah, yeah, he's always got one or two good songs, Stephen, you know, he's always got something, and he made lots and lots of money out of Robbie Williams as well, so fair play to him for that. Yeah, um, I, I also think that, that Wednesday Jones is one of my favorite Stephen Duffy songs. It's off the first cycle, is that off the ups and downs? Yeah. Julie Christie's on that as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, we were actually signed to the same label at that time, we were both signed to Virgin. Uh, where I was fresh out of college, fresh out of uni, and uh, he's, he's a bit older than me, Steve. But, uh, I mean, I knew him from around and about. We hadn't spoken to him probably 30 years. Now. Well, he was he was something else. And he, 
you know, he also did pretty well with the Bare Naked Ladies. I think he ended up really being, uh, you know, someone who made money behind the scenes. Oh yeah, well I think the big one, the big one was was was, was Robbie Williams because he made he made them. You know, I mean, he toured, he did that massive uh, tour with Robbie, uh, and he's he's pretty much sort of you know backed away from everything now, and he lives. But well, I know his brother a little bit, Nick, also from the Lilac Times, just a little bit, and they, they I think he lives down in Cornwall, and he's sort of semi semi reclusive. He doesn't really do much. I want to tell the truth. I want to tell the truth. I want to tell the truth. I want to tell my part of the truth. But there are feelings inside of me. Sometimes my head and my hands don't agree. Though I am close now, I just cannot see. I'm beside myself. I could tell a lie. I could tell you a fabulous lie. I could tell a lie without a word of a lie. But there are seasons inside of me. There's a blood feud I just cannot beat. Though I am right here, it seems I can't see. I'm beside myself. Beside myself. Beside myself. Beside your band 
Um, like how now when you move back to San Francisco, I imagine you're moving back fairly soon, yeah? Yeah, I'm coming back in about two weeks. Okay. I'm keeping the band. I'm keeping the band here. I'm coming back in October because I just did a. I've been doing quite a lot of touring in France. I've been to France like seven times in the last fourteen months to do shows. Um, so I'm coming back in October because I'm doing some shows with Robin Hitchcock, and then I'm in. We're in France with the band, and we're playing the south of France and Paris. Uh, and then I'm coming back to England doing some more shows here with the band, and then I'm, I'm back to California. So I think most of what I do musically will be um, in France or and a little bit in England. But the band, this band is so good, I'm not letting it get away from me. You know, we're, we're going to, I'm going to make, even though I'm going to be six, seven thousand miles away, I'm still going to maintain these this personnel, and we're going to be doing things in the future. Is that hard on you in terms of like having, living in San Francisco, having your band be located so far away? Is that, it's not ideal, obviously. It's not ideal, but you know, I have, I have, I have a wife and daughter in San Francisco, and, and that they have to take priority over everything else. But that's not to say that I'm giving anything else up. I mean, I, I've got a really well-drilled, fantastic players in in England who I can come back to, and, and I'll summon them up, you know, and they'll play with me. And the other thing is, you know, I'll, I'll probably do some shows in California. Um, this summer, I mean, I've had a couple of offers. I've had a good offer to go down and play in LA, and I'll probably do something in San Francisco. But it'll prob- probably be more, be more like a one-man show, but with a band. So it'll be the, the the songs of Matthew Edwards, you know, maybe maybe even throwing some music lover stuff. But it'll be a set of me chatting, singing, dancing, juggling. No, don't juggle. <laughs> no, my, you know, my my grand my grand my grandfather my grandfather guy he was a very erudite man he used to be with his tenets in life and my grandfather spent some time well working with the circus and the one thing he said to me that he stooped down low and said to me he said Matthew he said never trust a man who juggles <laughs> and I was like okay never trust I was like really that grandfather said yeah never trust a man who juggles so um I've, I've let that guide my life <laughs> by the way how did your grandfather end up as a juggler my granddad didn't want to go down the mines. He didn't want to go down the mines. He was in Shropshire. He didn't want to go down the mines because he, he, he had a bad chest. So he joined the circus. He was a banjo player in the circus for a couple of years just to get him out of that because we sang a circus. And my other grandfather was a juggler. No, not a juggler. <laughs> I've got jugglers on the brain. My God. No, my other grandfather was, was a part-time conjurer. He used to do magic. was into magic and giving magic shows. And uh, my both my parents, and, and my, especially on my father's side, my all my grand all my uh, uncle aunts and uncles and my grandmother had beautiful voices my dad was a really good singer that's he's somebody i'd aspire to be as good as my dad if, if i could be as good a singer as my dad i'd be doing all right so there really is like a, a performance based lineage in your life yeah but i think it, i think it's nothing extraordinary about that it was it, my, i come from a, i came from an inner city you know culture in birmingham where people did sing around the piano people did go down the pub and um sing songs, you know, it's like my parents didn't communicate much to, to actually talking to one another, but they were always singing together. And it was always the same with my aunts and uncles and my grandmother, you know, they'd always be music playing, they'd always be singing. It was just, it was, you know, I didn't have to try and search it out. It was thrust upon me from a really, really early age. Yeah, it's interesting. I always find that stuff really fascinating just in terms of, of like the directions that we go and, and whether or not the choices we're making are really organic or if they're, or if they're, uh, if they have nothing to do with our family, or if they have everything to do with our family, I don't know. Some people would would would, uh, 
would, would, you know, resist anything coming from the family side of things and go, no, you know, that is, I don't want to do that because everybody did. But I was, I was immersed in, in, in that world because going to my grandmother's and having everybody seeing and everybody drinking, that I, I just found it, thought it was really fun. It was really, it was pleasurable to be in that kind of environment. And then, of course, I'd go to the house and I'd walk up to my street when I was younger and, and you'd have, you'd, you'd have like a sound system playing in the house, kitty corner from my house and, you know, music was like everywhere, whether it was James last at my auntie's or, you know, one of my other aunties was obsessed with Glenn Campbell and Bobby Gentry and just a Tijuana Brass. And, you know, it was like music was everywhere. Motown, and my cousins, one of my other cousins went out with them, one of the move, you know. So it was all sort of, yeah, it was around me constantly. Do you feel that in your own songwriting, do you feel that you're getting closer to uncovering or apprehending the thing that you have been chasing? I mean, mm. it's a selfish question because I'm, I'm asking because I kind of, you know, there are times where, where I write and I kind of feel like, well, I don't know what Lemmy, didn't Lemmy say something like, the secret is write one great song 500 times. I feel like I'm writing the same thing over and over again, but I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to apprehending something. Do you feel that way yeah. in, your, in your work? Uh, um, I did. I did until I did this one. And I think, and I think I've, uh, I think I've captured it in a bottle. I think I think this is this is the best record I made. It's in, I think this is the culmination. That's why I'm I've been through enormously sad times, but I'm incredibly ha- satisfied in one way that this, the, the Birmingham Poets is the best record I've made, and it's the culmination of all these years since I was 15 of doing these things. And I've been very satisfied with certain things that I've done, and I've had some disastrous situations in in music and terrible disappointments, but I've always kept on doing it for one way or one way or another. So I really do think I've sort of achieved it. Anything after this has to match up to this. Will it? And if it doesn't, I won't do it. So in a way, I'm I'm in a pretty sort of, for one sort of, I'm in a bit of a state of grace at the moment, you know. It makes me understand why certain artists might might go, well, I, I'm just going to stop there because I feel that I, I crystallized everything that I'm that I'm trying to do. And I think anything else might fall short or I fear that it would. And I wonder if the fear is the part that is, you know, the scariest thing is like, what if I, you know, it's not up to snuff. Well, if it's not as good as, yeah, I think that's, I, I, I understand that. But then people can also do that and, and move on to something else, you know. I mean, I, I was, I'm a, I really liked, going back to Birmingham, I, I'm a big fan of Felt. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Felt. I really like Lawrence. I think he's, he's he wrote some brilliant stuff. But then when he he said, I'm going to make, you know, however many records it was for in a decade and however many singles in a decade, and I'm going to finish with Felt. And he, did, he said he was going to do that when he started, and he did it. And I thought I was enormous kudos for him for doing that. And then you've got, certain, you've got people who carry on way past their sell-by date, which is just, you've got to know, you've got to know when you're treading water. People have got to realise that and realise they're not actually doing anything new and stop or go and um, paint in your attic or something. Well, one of the I'm things, a terrible painter, by the way. <laughs> one of the things that you have in common with Felt is that your albums all have an aesthetic consistency, the way they look. Um, yeah. You know, did you, did you – you must think about that, obviously, because it seems oh, like it's very mm-hmm. purposeful. Yeah, it's very purposeful. I'm attracted to um, – I've always been uh, – as well as being very interested, like interested in music, I've always been actually more interested – uh, in in films, in film and movies, and 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 art and photography, 
and design. It, the things have always worked in Canada. I'm, I'm not good at any of those things. I'm a, I'm a guy who writes songs. I'm certainly not a musician, but I've always enjoyed the, the graphic elements and presentation. So, and when I see something I like, I see the work of somebody that I like. I make a mental note and backtrack. Hence, you know, with the music lovers, I used Elliot Erwitt, got permission to do that, and I got the permission to use the Maisless Brothers image and other artists. And with this, I've worked with the new album. I've worked with a guy called Pascal, Pascal Bluer in Paris, who's a designer I just adore. You know, I just think it's fantastic. And good photographers, you know, if you're going to produce a good product, and it's not a product, of course, it's art, but it's, art, it's an art product. You've got to get all the pieces together. You've got to make it as beautiful as possible for the people who are going to be getting it. You know, don't just throw it. I hate seeing good records in awful packaging. You know, make the whole thing gorgeous for people to hold on to. Make it an artifact. Even down to the, you know, the unfortunate uh, posters for shows or announcements on social mm-hmm. media, they have the same feel. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I follow, I follow my own aesthetic, what I like, and I do it all the way through, all the way along the line, you know, and there's no deviation. I don't let any, you know, of course people come to me and will, but I work, but I, you, you cherry pick the people. It's the same as being in a band. I cherry pick the people to play in a band with me and they're not necessarily the best musicians because I don't want to play with great musicians, although I do play with some. I want to play with people and work with people who I personally, A, really like them as human beings and are annoying and who are really, like, have a great aesthetic. You know, we're talking about, it's a bit of a crossover between the, the graphic element and the uh, musical element, but everybody's got to, got to be a cool person. I don't work with people who are dickheads. Well, it seems really sort of counterproductive. You could probably hear that tension or in the music, or I think it probably affects the art. I've got enough tension inside myself right. to keep me going, <laughs> to keep me going for with, with for a long, long time. The last thing I need is outside tension. Thank God. I mean, I've had I've had so much tension in my life, outside tension. I'm I'm at an age now where I'm just no, come on, and it's not productive. It doesn't work. It, you know. Well, it doesn't work for me. I'm better, I'm better off when I can stand back and look at the horrible things that happen around me and then reflect and write about them. You're the first guy who's actually admitted to being competitive with the whole world. Have you always been that way? Uh, no, I was completely ostracized when I was young. The whole world. Uh, I mean, I, I was a complete outsider at school until I saw Patti Smith play live and she liberated me. And I, nobody really. I had very few friends. Um, competitive, I always wanted to be the best front man. I always felt completely comfortable on stage where I'm almost completely uncomfortable, slightly uncomfortable everywhere else. I'm certainly not comfortable, completely comfortable in a lot, but he put me on a stage and I'm, I'm all right. You know, I'm totally okay. So competitive, competitive with myself as well. I don't want to backtrack. I never look back. I don't reminisce. I always want looking onto the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And, and is it going to be better than what I've done before? Is, it, is the next thing going to be better than something I've already produced? Don't repeat yourself, Edwards, you know. Um, so that's where I'm, I'm finding myself. Not at an impasse, because that would be negative. But it's why I'm thinking right now, am I at a place where I want to continue doing this and not if I'm not going to produce something that's up to snuff? How has being a father challenged your idea of not reminiscing? Because she's a child and she lives in the present and she doesn't reminisce. You know, I, rel- I relate to her. With, I relate to her as she changes, as she changes, and I say, which is constantly changing, which is great. And, um, you know, you don't, I don't look back on her when she was a baby or young and think, oh, yeah, or don't look back at her and think, 
when I was a child. I've had forced reminiscences recently because I've been dealing with clearing out a house of my parents who were hoarders. My, my father kept his ration books, you know, and, and his discharge papers from the army and his dog tags. And mum kept the, the telegram she got when I was born and stuff. So, it's, you know, the house was full of stuff. But that's, I can't, I don't sentimentalise things like that particularly. I, I feel emotive, emotions about them and I'm not going to go, oh, God, isn't that lovely, you know. No, doesn't do that. Everything's new, everything's fresh. She's a child, she's fresh, you know, she's grasping towards things. I've got to fight for her for her future. I'm going to think about that. How do you decide then what going through your parents' house, what to keep? Something that's the objects that have got a, an emotional uh, relevance to me now. Um, I've just actually parceled up a bunch of band stuff from a band I was in years ago to give it to somebody that it means much more to than me, one of the other members of the band. I'm, I'm giving it to him um, because, you know, I, I've got it's in my memory bank, so I don't need to see if it's all going to go there. So I've got two, one basically one bag of stuff from here um, that that means a great deal to me. Like one little suitcase, things of things of mum and dad's and things of growing up. But um, it's not something I'm going to you know delve into very often. It's just there so I can pass it on, so that if I have to tell Charlotte, my daughter, a story or stuff about a grandfather, I can illustrate it with objects or photographs. You're interesting in the sense that I I have found with you, I can mention anybody to you and you you're aware of them and you know about them how do you know so much I, i've always, i can say the most obscure musician and you'll know exactly who i'm talking about do you stay really uh apprised of what's going on in the in the world of pop culture and music uh yes and no uh i tend to just naturally absorb certain certain parts of certain information and i was very intrigued with music when i was younger and i liked reading about music a lot um when I when I was younger and uh, I, I wanted to know a lot about, and I'm not an obsessive. Um, the only person I've ever really been obsessive about is Laura Nero, you know, and which has been a lifelong obsession, um, which I, I have no qualms about saying. Other than that, um, I still say abreast because I'm still interested in, in hearing new music. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of times I get dis- disappointed. I like a lot of contemporary music in England I can I can really admire it a lot of the the grime stuff and a lot of the the, the rap stuff that comes out of here you know 20 years ago it would have been considered avant-garde it would have just it would have been on the margins and now it's in the charts it's, I, I find that really interesting and there's other I mean I, you know I, yeah, I do keep abreast of, of, of what's going on but I just I just don't like a lot of it and you're naturally curious, like you're also open to being thrilled. It's not. It's not. A, it's not based on cynicism. Oh no, I'm actually questing to be thrilled. I, I want. I want to. I want to be thrilled. I want to go to the movies and go. Come out and go. Every time I go, I go with the expectation this is going to surprise me. Or every time I hear something, I'm going. Oh, I really hope I hear a great song on this. You know. And and sometimes in the last year or two, that that has happened. I've heard. You know. I still. I stay very much abreast of movies. Um, and what and television for that matter recently, which has been really good. Um, and I still, if, if if I hear a name, you know, somebody mentioned to me Aldous Harding the other week or a couple of months ago, and then my, my wife went to see her in San Francisco, so I went to her, and, and she, yeah, she's got a real talent, and, you know. So it, it's all about word of mouth. And then I've had some old friends who've produced really good stuff in in recent times that's been that's been really refreshing as well to see people after all these years still 
doing something really valid. Yeah, and it seems like to me like pop music kind of swings around, and and I feel like um, I don't know. Like I listen, I heard that that uh, "Bless This Acid House" song by Kasabian, and I thought that's like one of the best pop songs I've heard in a while. So pop is alive. Um, it just seems like it swings around. Yeah, of course it does. It does. So I mean, there's so many little niches now, and so many little you know these these subgenres and genres of genres and whatever you know. Um, if you if you rustle around in amongst them, the, the some or something will, will will come up. I'm not actively seeking them out, but if somebody mentions it, somebody I respect mentions something to me, I go immediately and go and listen to it. And I still I really love still love going and seeing live bands as well. Going and seeing live music, it's great. Well, you know, I you know the Birmingham Poets is for my money is just an absolutely perfect and beautiful album. I can see why you feel the way that you feel. It's I mean it really thank is you, perfect. Thank um, you, thank you. You know, I've been uh, I've been I mean, I've, I've been sort of blown away with the reviews that it's got. I mean I've gotten some amazing reviews in, in the UK and in uh, and in France. You know and and I've had some beautiful experiences doing. I mean. I mean, obviously, with anybody doing things on the level, I mean, I'm signed to a small French label. With anybody doing anything on the level that I'm doing, which is pretty, you know, rummaging around in the uh, in the undergrowth of the music industry, um, it's still. I'm, I, I wish I'd love to reach a wider audience, but I probably won't. And if I don't, I'm not going to cry over it, you know. But I, I just, if people heard it, they'd like it. I agree. I, think. <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's funny because you, you know, Bill Pritchard, you, your sound is not dissimilar, though it's not the same. Uh, and Bill Pritchard yeah. also has a, an enormous following in France. Yeah, you know, I'd never heard of him until I went, until I started playing in France. I actually didn't know who the guy was at all, but he's he's really quite fated there, and people that like the guys from my label really like him. So I listened to him, and I like it. Yeah, but but living in England, living in the United States, I honestly didn't. Have a clue who he was. Yeah, it's funny because I think people in England don't even know who he is. Like where he's from, don't know who no. he is. No, I, I mean I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you where he's from, but I mean I like his stuff, you know. But yeah, I mean the French have a. Uh, um, no, I don't want to generalise, but they 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 do. They people who come like I do from a very European tradition, a chanson tradition, um, story songs, and uh, you know, with a lot of care taken over the words. Uh, I think that that's appreciated, even though they're you know in another you know different language. I think that's very appreciated in France. You're talking about a very, a very intelligent audience in France, a very nest audience, and very literate. Yeah, very literate audience. You know, um, intelligent, literate, um, listen very intently, very closely. And I'm this. I'm talking. I'm talking across the board now as well. I'm talking about they could be listening to to a new rap track, or they could be listening to you know, what have you, but I'll still listen with very intently, which I, I really admire. I know you got to go, but uh, you're back in San Francisco soon. So when you come back, uh, we're getting together. Let's get together and, um, and uh, you know, have a, have a beer, have a cup of bits and pizza or something and have a chat really soon. I'd love it. Have a great day. And thank you for your time, my friend. Oh, my pleasure. Ray. Thank you, my friend. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. I Bye-bye. hope you got some good stuff. Always good stuff with Matthew Edwards. Uh, go get his music, Matthew Edwards and the Unfortunates.bandcamp.com.
I mean, you're going to love the Birmingham Poets, but listen, since you're there, pick up Folklore and pick up The Fates. Those are the other two albums by Matthew Edwards and The Unfortunates. As for me, you can find me online, alexgreenonline.com, or go the Twitter route, at Ember's Editor, or find me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast, or just email me the old-fashioned way, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Who do you want on the program? Who have I not talked to that you'd love for me to talk to? Let me know. Put in your request, and uh, I will see what I can do. Okay? Is that fair? Now, you can find Stereo Embers, the podcast, all over the place. Anywhere you get podcasts, we're there. Spotify, Google Play, Last.fm, Stitcher, uh, whatever's, whatever's left of iTunes, we're there. So subscribe, leave a nice comment, a rating of some kind, we'd really appreciate it. And as always, we appreciate you listening week in and week out. Thank you very much for your support of the program. It really does mean the world to us. All right? Okay. Enough sappy stuff. I'm not going to get all emotional. I'm just going to say that if you were here, I'd hug you in an embarrassing way. Uh, all right. Let's close things off with Matthew Edwards and the Unfortunates. This is California. Can you wait? Enjoy it right here. And I will see you next time for another episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio. It's been a bad day for the dreamers. We came along. Ba-da-ba. Ba-da-ba.